When I was a teenager, uh, I grew up in Mississippi, and in the church tradition that I grew up in, every so often we would have what we called a fall revival. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where this was a thing. I don't know if this is a thing in Kansas. I'm, I'm, I'm certain it's happened before, but it was a big thing in Mississippi. Revivals were a big deal. And when our church hosted a revival, we'd have a guest preacher come in uh, to preach several nights in a row, kind of leading up to Sunday. Sometimes this person was called an evangelist, and, and often the emphasis of these sermons were to see people uh, come to faith in Jesus, soul winning, sometimes it was called. And, and church members were encouraged not only to come to these fall revivals, but to invite their friends, to bring their coworkers, to bring their neighbors. To, the focus of these meetings was, was evangelistic. The preacher would sometimes tell these stories of tragic car accidents and the uncertainty of tomorrow. And the goal was to wake listeners up to the reality of heaven and hell. And I can tell you that as a 14-year-old boy, they had their effect. Sometimes we call this fire and brimstone preaching. We don't tend to like fire and brimstone preaching today. Admittedly, it makes me uncomfortable I prefer the Apostle Paul's notion that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I like sermons on God's kindness. And yet, as Dale Bruner points out in his commentary, if someone tells you that hellfire is not a legitimate motive for Christian preaching, he says, let us ask them to reread the sermons of this gospel and see if they can sustain this thesis. What we find in the preaching of John the Baptist here in Matthew chapter 3 is a bit of fire. In fact, he mentions it three times and two explicitly about the fire of hell. He also uses the word wrath, the wrath of God. And he uses the vivid imagery of an axe being lain at the root of a tree, ready to chop it down. John preached on judgment. He wasn't scared to mention hell. John the Baptist was old school. He was enigmatic and eccentric. He wore camel hair and a leather belt. He ate wild locusts and honey. I don't know what kind of diet that is, but it's not what I'm trying to get on, right? I mean, this dude definitely wasn't a Presbyterian, right? There were no bow ties in his closet. And yet, that's not a dig of Presbyterians. I have lots of Presbyterian friends. I'm just saying they don't wear camel hair. They wear bow ties, you know. And yet, despite John being an enigma, despite him being kind of this renegade, old school, fire and brimstone preacher, what the text tells us is that he was gaining popularity. Matthew tells us that, that people from all Jerusalem and Judea and, and the vicinity of the Jordan we're going out to hear this fiery revival preacher preach. Now, they were perhaps going for different reasons. Some were maybe going to John out of intrigue. Who is this guy? Maybe others were searching for the truth. 
or for a religious experience. In fact, John tells us, or Matthew tells us rather, that some were even getting baptized by John in the Jordan River. But whatever the reason for going to him, John's evangelism ministry was growing. We might even call what was happening in the ministry of John the Baptist a revival. Now, I'll admit to you that in retrospect, when I look back at those fall meetings of my youth, I I chuckle a little because it's a little audacious, isn't it, to put revival on the calendar as if we can schedule God in to the calendar, right? God, we've slotted the third week of October. It would be great if you could show up in power then, right? That's, That's not how revival works. That's not exactly how it happens. You can't put God on a clock, which begs the question this morning. This is where I want to dig in this morning. How does revival happen? It's what we see happening in the text. Maybe you remember or recall that last year at Asbury Seminary, a revival broke out as students chose to to linger after a chapel service. From what I read, it began as one student began to confess some sin, and they chose to linger in that moment and to, to begin to pray together. And then spontaneous worship broke out and and soon the news spread and and other students on campus began to join the students who were there in the chapel and before they knew it the word spread beyond the campus and people from all over were traveling to Wilmore to experience what was happening. Those who attended the Asbury Revival would tell you that what they experienced was something holy, it was something worshipful and wonderful. Similar things were happening at Wilmore that we see in the text this morning happening with John the Baptist out in the wilderness of Judea. And and I'll be honest with you, church, I would love to see it happen here in Wichita among us. How might we experience revival? There's no formula to it. There's no three steps to a movement of God. But I do think that what we find in the text this morning is that that John the Baptist gives us some guidance, that he shows us how to prepare ourselves for God to show up. I think he warns us about some obstacles that might stand in the way of of God moving in power in our lives. And And he actually points us to the one key ingredient that has to be there. And so I'd like to pay attention to, to John's words this morning under the headings of preparation, obstacles, and fire. So let's look first at preparation. All four Gospels emphasize the ministry of John the Baptist. Now for perspective, only two of the Gospels tell the birth narrative of Jesus. Now I'm not saying that John the Baptist is more important than the birth of Christ. But I do think that that it tells us something important. That John the Baptist, there's something important about John. That in the mind of the gospel writers, he was an important figure. That he played a critical role in redemption history. And in fact, there was this expectation that before the Messiah came, that the prophet Elijah would reappear. If you remember the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, he's the guy that we find in in 1st and 2nd Kings. And Elijah was was known for, for being this hairy man that wore a leather belt around himself. And Elijah was the prophet who never actually died, that this chariot of fire came and and raptured Elijah off the scene. 
And so some anticipated that Elijah would return. In fact, the prophet Malachi would later prophesy, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The prophet Malachi prophesied that before the Messiah came, that Elijah would reappear. And so devout Jews were waiting for the reappearance of Elijah when suddenly this John guy shows up out in the desert wearing camel hair, leather belt around his waist, preaching a message of preparation for the Messiah. And Matthew not only links John to Elijah with his reference to his strange clothing, but he also connects him to the one spoken of in Isaiah 40. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Eastern monarchs, whenever they would go on a journey, would, especially through like a desert or a wilderness, they would send messengers out in front of them to, to make ready the path that they would travel as they went on their journey. They would open up the passes, they would level the roads, they would get rid of all the impediments to their, to their journey. And so in its original context, these verses in Isaiah figuratively picture preparing the roads from Babylon to Jerusalem as the exiles of Israel would make their way back to Israel. That's the picture here. But now Matthew takes this imagery, he takes this prophecy, and he ties it to the Messiah's trailblazer. He ties it to the one sent by God to prepare the way for God's chosen one to come. And he's telling us that's who John is. John is this trailblazer. He's this, he's this forerunner sent to prepare the way of the Lord. So how do you prepare the way for God to usher in his salvation? I think we need to think about this question, particularly because it's an election year. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll begin to succumb to the idea that, that God does his best work through things like politics, through things like who's in office. If you listen to the candidates, by the way, they'll all but tell you that they're the Messiah. That they're God's chosen one who's going to make everything right. We're often tempted to believe, if we're honest, that God works mainly through things like political power and, and community organization or perhaps even theological reformation. In this passage, there are two groups mentioned who come to check this John figure out. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're two very different groups. The Pharisees were the serious parties. They were, they were the theological conservatives. They were meticulous about the interpretation of, of Torah. Often the Pharisees were separatists. We might call them legalists. They were the ones who thought they were the only ones doing it right. On the other hand, there were the Sadducees. They, they were the theological progressives. The Sadducees were more the pragmatists who focused on social progress. And while I'm, think, I'm speaking here in broad strokes, I think these two groups could really represent most of us in the room. Bruner says we must learn to read the words Pharisees and Sadducees and to see ourselves or we will miss half of Matthew's gospel. Let's be careful not to exempt ourselves out of this story. 
Some of us are tempted, if we're honest, to focus on theological purity as the way to revival. We think that if we can just get our doctrine right, then everything will fall into place. If you're a fan of John Calvin or Martin Luther, this is you. Others of us are tempted to focus more on social progress, activism, ministry. Monday is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s day of remembrance. He fell in this camp. His cause was just. And truthfully, each of these groups has their place. We need reformation and we need activism. But as a starting place, John points us to something else. He points us to something deeper. He points us to something more personal. He says before any reformation or social agenda, what we need first is to start with ourselves. To look within. I've told this story before, but I'll share it again. The Times once published a query in their newspaper, and the question was this, what's wrong with the world today? And in response to that question, G.K. Chesterton submitted a succinct and poignant answer. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. John the Baptist says that this is the right answer, that the way toward revival begins here with an admission of our own sin, with an inward look and an about face. He says that it is necessary to repent, that the prerequisite for revival is self-reflection that leads to repentance. To, to repent means to turn away from something and to turn toward something else. Mike Cosper puts it this way. He says it means a new way of looking at the world. Repent, John says, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. God's kingdom, his rule, his reign is coming. In other words, what John is announcing is that everything is about to change. And so you can no longer continue to live in the same way. What, what John was telling his audience is that if you knew who was coming, you would not continue to live the way you've been living. You wouldn't trifle with keeping up with the Joneses. You'd lay down all your silly little idols. You'd stop with your hidden sins because the king is about to be here. The one who's going to change everything and usher in God's salvation, he's just around the corner. This was John's message in a nutshell. And he's inviting us to think for a moment how we might live differently if we really believe that God was about to show up. He says, start living like that now. Because God is near. This was John's sermon. And people began to respond to John's message by confessing their sins, by getting honest about their lives. They began to turn from their wicked ways. They stopped pretending. And they started confessing. Something big was happening out across the Jordan. Our natural impulse, isn't it, is to hide our sins and to herald our works. Isn't that what we do? We tend to hide our sins and to herald our good works. But Scripture teaches us just the opposite. It tells us to confess our sins and to conceal our works because God sees them. 
And, and when people begin to bring their sins to the light, they're actually on the cusp of experiencing revival. They're actually on the cusp of having a real taste of, of God. John tells us here that revival starts with getting honest before God. Notice that they weren't only privately confessing their sins, but also getting baptized. Uh, in other words, they were bringing their brokenness and their need for cleansing before others. They were putting it out there into the light. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says, If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just or righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bruner says this. He says, we are free from sin only when we face it. We disown sin by owning up to it. Sin is remitted where sin is admitted. Brett and I have actually been talking about this quite a bit lately. Evan mentioned a few minutes ago, a, a, a men's chili cook-off that we're going to be having here in, in a week or two. And we're going to be sharing more about this. But Brett and I are convinced that, that the way to experience true, true, true renewal is to, to begin to bring sin into the light. And something that we've been talking about a lot is that it's possible for us to continue on in Bible studies and to never actually get to the business of dealing with our sin. God actually has a lot to say about this. He says things like, I hate your religious activities. Because what pleases me is a broken and a contrite heart. A spirit grieved by sin and eager to change. And so what we've been talking about doing is, is, is changing things up a little bit. Pivoting our men's ministry this semester. And men, we think it needs to start with us. We think we need to be the pace setters here. And so instead of Bible studies this semester, what we want to do is we want to get guys in a context for the sole purpose of accountability, confession, and prayer. We want to get guys together and look each other in the eye and to get honest and to bring our sin out into the light and to say, hey, would you pray for me? And I'll pray for you. It's not that we're anti-Bible study. We actually love the Bible. We love the part where it says, if you confess your sins to one another and pray for another, one another, you can be healed. This is where renewal begins. It, it begins by dealing honestly with our sins. And so John calls us to get honest with ourselves before the Lord. And he says, no one is exempt from this. One of the things that commentators bring out in this passage is that what John is calling for is something new for the Jewish people. In the Jewish religion, they had various washings for different things, but it was never required for a Jew to be baptized. The only ones that had to be baptized in the Jewish religion were, were the Gentile proselytes, the Gentile believers who wanted to, to essentially practice Judaism. They had to go through a baptism. Jews were never asked to be baptized. And yet here is John calling for everyone to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. What's he doing? John's leveling the playing field. He's making it clear to everyone who comes to him that everyone needs this. That no one holds rank above another. That's why when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he looks at them and he says, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He's asking them, Are you here for baptism too? Is that why you're here? Did you come to participate or just to audit? 
And see, that's the obstacle, right? I think the greatest danger that stands in the way of us experiencing renewal is the presumption that we're already okay. The the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though different in their perspectives, both believe themselves to have the high ground morally and theologically over everyone else. And so they weren't coming to John to be baptized. They were coming as critical observers. You know, it's easy to show up to worship that way, isn't it? To come in as an inspector of orthodoxy. To come in as a casual observer rather than a sinner in need of mercy. Maybe you've seen this video before. This happened several years ago, but there was an evangelist by the name of Paul Washer preaching to an audience of teenagers at some sort of a youth crusade. And Washer really begins to go in hard on the culture and to go in hard on how teenagers who claim the name of Christ dress no different from the world and talk no different from the world and behave no different from the world. And somewhere in the middle of his tirade, the the crowd begins to clap, clap washer on until he finally pauses a long pregnant pause. And then he says, I don't know what you're clapping about. I'm talking about you. Which was followed by an even more awkwardly long pause. And that's essentially what John is saying to his visitors. John has a word for these overly confident Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And the axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Both groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, they took special comfort in their pedigree. They believed that their natural descendancy from Abraham secured them as God's chosen ones. They thought that they were exempt from God's judgment by virtue of their ethnicity. And so what John wants to help them see is that they they need not have confidence based on this false foundation. That his sermon is an attack on this false eternal security. Church, I don't want to get fire and brimstone this morning, but if you'll allow me for just a moment, I think we have similar trappings in evangelicalism. That if you pray this prayer, everything will be fine. That if you just ask Jesus into your heart, you'll go to heaven. I remember attending a funeral one time of a young man who had tragically died. This kid had grown up in the church, hadn't walked with the Lord in a number of years. To be honest, the state of his soul, unclear. The pastor, however, feeling the need to bring reassurance said when Johnny was seven, he prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into his heart. And so we know he's with Jesus. And church, if I can be honest with you, that's not much different than saying we have Abraham as our father. Friends, listen to me. Reciting a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't put you in the right with God. 
John says we need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, something deeper has to happen in us, something that changes us at our roots, something that changes us from the inside out, from deep within. We need the fruit that accords with repentance, a hunger and a thirsting after righteousness, a a longing for a new heart. This is where John drives us to something outside of ourselves. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one is coming after me who is more powerful than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What John is fundamentally telling us is that his ministry can only go so far, but that what people ultimately need is the one who's coming after him, that that true revival comes through another. Many people see in this passage and in the way that Matthew is telling his story as John representing the law and Jesus representing the gospel. And the law can reveal our need for Jesus, but it cannot save us. We need the one who can give us the Holy Spirit. We need the one who can change us from the inside out. We need the gospel. John's ministry was like Elijah on Mount Carmel. He could assemble the wood, but the fire has to come from heaven. He's saying, I can ready you for this coming one, but he's the one that's got to do the real work in you. And the good news of John's message that John proclaims is that that one is coming. The one who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And church, the good, even better news is that he, in fact, has come. Which means the power to actually be forgiven of sin. The power to actually be changed from the inside out. The power to have new roots that produces new fruit has come through Jesus, who through his death and resurrection and ascension has poured out the Holy Spirit. So the question this morning is, do you long for new life? Do you long for real liberation from sin? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? What John is telling us is, then look to Jesus, God's Messiah, because he will baptize you with fire. He will put his very spirit inside of you and free you not only from sin's penalty, But from sin's power, he'll do a real work in you. I like what Pastor Jeff Vanderstelt says. He says, I've stopped asking people if they're Christians. And I've started asking people if they've received the Holy Spirit. This is a critical question. Have you received God's Spirit? John is inviting us to consider this. To push past the status quo religion. And what he's telling us is that if you long for a fresh move of God, if you long for a real work that starts from the inside out, then get on your knees and confess your sins and beg for God's spirit. And begin to see the world differently because the kingdom has come near in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.